Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table with your co-hosts, Anna Wolfenden and Sam Chamlin. Welcome back to the Food and Faith Podcast, and it is our pleasure to have one of our most special guests because she doubles as a host. Um, our very own Anna Wolfenden is going to be uh, talking to us today. We're really excited about uh, an offering that she has, um, particularly around Ash Wednesday. We're going to be hearing a sermon that Anna preached um, and looking forward to hearing a little bit about that. Um, and so, Anna, thank you for letting us borrow your sermon for a little while and throwing it up on the pod. Hey, thanks for wanting to hear it. I preached this sermon last year at Wake Forest Divinity's school chapel, and compost is something that I continue to be inspired by and um, learn from. So I'm really glad to be able to share this sermon with the pod. As we look towards Ash Wednesday and sort of the Lenten season that follows it, um, I get asked a lot, why is approaching liturgical seasons from a food and agriculture point of view different than maybe how it's practiced in sort of a more traditional or a more conventional church? Um, And I wonder how you would answer that. What does food and agriculture contribute um, to our larger liturgical seasons? Yeah, I love that question. Well, I am a liturgical geek, self-professed, and I found that during my time leading the Garden Church and doing liturgy, mostly outdoors, it offered an invitation to dig more deeply into the elements of liturgy and why we do the different pieces that we do. And then even to connect with the physical things. I think I've shared on the pod before and I mean, that at the Garden Church, we had um, this church in a basket. We call it our tabernacle. And it had all the things that we needed because when, when I started doing church outdoors, we started in public parks. I suddenly was like, okay, you know, we kind of stripped this down. We kind of like, what are, what are that like the bare essentials you need for church? And I found out, well, you do need some things. Like we needed a Bible, we needed a candle which sometimes stayed lit and sometimes didn't because you're worshiping outdoors. Later on, we got a little lantern, you know. Um, You need the bread and the cup for communion. You need water if you're going to do a baptism. So that these like physical things that that mark our liturgy, that are um, those, those, those symbols that we use. So needing to unpack and to think about what are the things that we needed each week to make to make worship, to do worship together, to do liturgy together, uh, was an opportunity for me to look at those different pieces. And so, for example, when Ash Wednesday comes along, then you need to figure out, like, you need the ash, right? Along with all the other pastors and all the other situations. Um, but in a traditional church setting, I don't think that, like, when I've served at traditional churches, I don't think about, like the candle necessarily, or the Bible, or these these things that we use. Um, so I think that when we take our liturgy outdoors, when we take it out into the natural world, that there's an opportunity to, to rethink or to um, maybe reflect more regularly on these, these sacred things that remind us of the presence of God with us. So Ash Wednesday um, is one of my favorites, thinking about doing it in in an agricultural setting, because you're literally using this dirt, soil, ash, dust. And worshiping outdoors, that was something that we had 
in quite abundance. <laughs> that was something that was a, just a, a normal, normal piece that we, our hands would be dirty from working in the dirt. Um, people's feet would be dirty. People who were living outdoors were, were dealing with dust and dirt as a, as a regular piece and thing. And while we did use the ashes that we burned from the, from the palm leaves the, from the year before, um, that we mixed those in with some of that that soil and that the soil that we were using in the sacramental way was just really ordinary and practical. And maybe that's the thing that, that it kind of comes down to is that these practical, ordinary things that are around you are also the things that are sacred mm. and the things that we can point to and say, the spirit of God is with us. Yeah. Yeah. And I can't help but think like as, as, gardens and farm churches and people who practice food and faith um, are ramping up um, as we as we approach the season that Ash Wednesday inaugurates um, we're also doing a lot of garden prep um, and this sermon has a lot to do around compost which is foremost um, in my mind just as we think about adding adding stuff to the soil getting it ready um, hoping that things thaw out and dry out that we can be planting and so I wonder what it was and I don't want to give too much of your sermon away but um, what it was about compost that that drew it that made it a good illustration for an Ash Wednesday sermon. Yeah, well, basically, I try to make anything a good illustration for compost because I'm kind of obsessed. Um, I am obsessed about compost on a practical level because it's really essential for good growing of food. Um, I'm obsessed with it environmentally because food waste is a huge thing. And, um, but over the years, I've also become obsessed with it in terms of a metaphor for God and for the church. And that I feel, and I do get into this more in the sermon, I feel like there is so much about doing church in this day and age that feels like a pull between all the things that are dying and crumbling and all the things that we want to be born. And I think so particularly as a church planter, I'm usually more on that, like what's next, what's coming next side. Um, but that it can't ignore that, which is dying. And, and that I want to be able to hold both of those and hold them in the messy tension that it, that it is. And the metaphor of the compost heap is, really given me a lot of um of life and of space to be able to hold both of those and i think it's a similar tension that we experience on ash wednesday i mean isn't it weird that people like we can go out on the streets like yeah. i've you know i've done this like go out on the streets and be like ashes for ash wednesday and people like flock to you yeah it's weird like, lift up their hair yeah they're and like are like Give me this cross that says you are going to die. Yes. Like, why do we want that? Like, why are we drawn to that? And I think a piece of it is that there is something deeply comforting in the knowledge that birth, death, resurrection, all of these are connected and that they come together and that we acknowledge that there's, there is a crumbling, there is a dying, that this is this is part of the process. Yeah. Um, so I think Ash Wednesday and compost just go together in my brain and that it is, it's, it's 
holding the tension of those two sides. I don't even want to say two sides. Those, those different parts of the cycle yeah. of, of life and death. Well, certainly in the sermon, that that plays itself out really, really well. Um, and I, I commend I commend this pod to our listeners, really, just as as we think about the garden and food, um, and also the season of Ash Wednesday. I love compost. All right. Yeah. Actually, over the last four years, I've become a bit obsessed with it. You can just ask my husband, who now carefully places his apple and carrot peels into the compost container, even when I'm out of town for the week. Right. Yeah. In 2014, I moved to Los Angeles, California, to start the Garden Church, a church that has grown out of the longing and the desire to reconnect with our food, to reconnect with the earth, to connect with each other, and connect with God. As we transformed a land, a piece of land, an urban lot, into a vibrant urban garden and outdoor sanctuary. In those early months of making church together, the church wandered from public park to downtown street corner, working and worshiping and eating together, and listening to our neighbors, and walking our neighborhood and finding out where's the grocery store and are there fresh vegetables there? Where's the elementary school and the clinic? Where are the homeless encampments? And where are those empty lots of earth yearning to be transformed? During that season, we also started composting. Because before we had that plot of land that we could transform, we asked our team, what did we have? What were the resources that were already there? And what could we do to use them to nurture this dream? And so we found that we had food scraps. We all had food scraps. We had a generous farmer, an urban farmer a couple doors down with a big compost bin, but not a whole lot to put in it. And we had people who were ready and wanting to do something to prepare the soil, literally, for the garden church to grow. And so we started to compost. Now, I know in this room we probably have a one-room classroom, uh, a one-room schoolhouse in terms of compost. So I'm just going to give you composting 101 to so we're all on the same page. <laughs> compost takes all sorts of things that are left over, done, used, and dying. Food scraps and peels and dried leaves and shredded newspaper, your stale bread, and it turns them all into rich, beautiful soil. You take all this stuff and you gather it together and you put it in a container. It doesn't have to be fancy, but it helps if it's purposeful. And then you let nature do her thing. And what immediately starts to happen are these little bacteria get to work. They start breaking down the banana peel and the crunchy maple leaves. And then just weeks later, just weeks later, a well-tended compost heap reveals its magic. What where a bunch of old food scraps were, we now find dark, rich, beautiful, nutrient-full soil. What was just a few weeks ago made you plug your nose and go running the other way, <laughs> Now you can want to bury your face in it and smell that nice, fresh, warm dirt. And it's not just any old dirt. Soil that comes from compost is amazing. It improves the soil structure, it increases nutrient content, it holds water more effectively, and it wards off plant diseases. Not to mention the incredible environmental impact 
the composting mates. And then there are the theological implications. The more I learn about compost, the more I see the image of God imprinted on that process. Mm -hmm. Proclaiming the work that God is doing in the world. That God is the ultimate recycler. Mm -hmm. The divine composter. Taking all that has been, all that we've used, our best bits and our kind of slimy bits. <laughs> the ends of this and the pain of loss the tantalizing crumbs of those joyful moments and the leftovers that we've clung on to for too long. Mm -hmm. God takes all of that and says, okay, great. What are we going to do with this next? God, as the divine composter, in our own lives, in our society, in creation, and, I believe, in the church. Here in this room, I know that there are a lot of different stories and experiences with church and what church has been, is, and might be. Personally, I often feel caught in the crosshairs between what the church has been and what parts are dying and changing and what the church might be, what is coming next. I struggle with whether the job of ministry is that of a hospice chaplain or that of a midwife. Is it caring for what is dying, or is it called to welcome what is next? And so often, I place it in that dichotomy. It's either over here, or it's over here. And if I'm over here, I feel discouraged and paralyzed by what can I do with this dying thing. And if I'm over here, I get pretty self-righteous about how the new best thing is the way that I see it. divine composter calls me to surrender all of this to her. The God of resurrection, the God who doesn't waste anything, the God who takes the tensions that are in the transition and sees it all in that light of that cycle of life and death and resurrection, and in the things that are being composted, is planting those seeds, as Reverend Dr. Brown shared last week, the seeds of that which is to come, that which is here, that which is being born. All together, held together in this transition. In our scripture today, we see this profound moment of transition, of taking over leadership from one generation to the next. As Elijah knows he's about to be taken up by a whirlwind, he tries to shake off his companion, Elisha, but Elisha will have none of it. As the Lord lives and as you yourself lives, I will not leave you, he proclaims to his mentor. They continue to travel away from Gilgal across the Jordan River that's parted as the, the cloak, the mantle, is put in the water. And Elijah asks Elisha, tell me what I may do for you before I am taken away from you. And Elisha said, please give me a double share, a double portion of your spirit. To which Elijah responds, 
you are asking a hard thing. If you see me as I am being taken away from you, if you see me, if you stay there, if you witness that moment as I am being taken away from you, it will be granted. But if you do not, if you turn your head, if you run away, it will not. And so Elijah challenges him to get that double portion in order to get that blessing. You must witness my leaving. You must let go and be present in that moment of transition, present to the grief and to the pain. And Elisha cries out and tears his clothing when his beloved Elijah is taken up in the chariots of fire. He looks into that searing, blazing light of the deep loss and the letting go. And as his eyes follow his master, his master's cloak dropping to the ground. And he goes over it and he picks it up. And he takes it down and he strikes the Jordan River and it parts. And that power and blessing of God is reborn, is passed on, is being made new. We may not like this idea of compost seems like an awful, smelly idea. Elisha didn't like the idea of Elijah going away. It was an awful, painful idea. And yet after the loss, in the loss, because of it, came a blessing and a double portion of his spirit. The gospel, the good news, doesn't promise us this pretty little garden with nice rows. It doesn't promise us this nice linear path that we can understand. The gospel promises us and shows us a much messier, but a much more defiantly hopeful picture. It's the gospel of the dust and the good news of the compost heap. It's not always pretty, it doesn't always smell good, but it's always moving us into the promise of the renewal of all things. And it's the soil that those seeds of defiant hope are planted in. In founding and leading the Garden Church, I found I had to die to many of the ways I thought it would be or could be. Even in creating something new. When we didn't get the land that we thought that we were supposed to have, and then ten months later we got the place where the people we were called to serve were living. When we didn't get that grant or with that core team of people that I was sure were going to be the people that were going to be with me in this process, left. And then another group of people showed up, and I, they were needed. They had things to do. They had gifts to give. I saw in myself and in that community the other mess that is death and resurrection happening at the same time, that which crumbles alongside the little sprouts coming up in the earth. Each week as we gathered around the table in the middle of that empty lot turned edible sanctuary with the waft of the actual compost smell, which is not always pleasant. In the background, I saw the divine composter at work, bringing together the mess of our lives as we had our judgments softened and our hard shells cracked by being in community together. I felt my rigid ideas of how it should go and what it should be like getting mushy as an overripe banana as I stood with my arms lifted over the communion table 
and had to pause for a good three to five minutes as a gang of 25 motorcyclers came rushing by. Or when we had to weave the sounds of the fire siren into the prayers of the people. Rarely, well, no, never, was worship exactly how I planned it. And the people didn't sit nicely and quietly and attentively the way you all are. <laughs> George would wander in with his grubby t-shirt and his baggy blue sweatpants and his big sunglasses covering his puffy eyes. And some days he would sit and doze during the sermon, but most days he'd have something to add. He'd loop around about some semi-permanent, some semi-pertinent fact of U.S. history, or replay an absolute theological fact from his childhood. I would say, "Not right now, George. Now's the time to listen." And he'd say, "Just two things, Pastor. Just, just two things." And I have to say, I would get annoyed, and I would get frustrated because it wasn't the way that I wanted it to be. It wasn't this nice liturgy that just went along. And I would feel that slime and that compost inside myself. And then in the mess, in the distractions, in the interruptions, God would start to stir those dusty places of my heart. God would do her composting thing, and by the time I stood again at the communion table and looked around, I could see just a bit anew. The two guys in their 20s who live in the alleyway across the street, sitting next to the young couple with their toddler who always carries her green stuffed monkey, Mono Verde, with her. <laughs> I could see the downtown lawyer and the 81-year-old former nun turned ethnomusicologist, now our farmer. I could see that God was doing a new thing. God was in and amongst the broken places in our community, in the systems. God was planting those seeds of defiance right there in that mess. And as I looked around and chanted our well-worn communion prayer, God speaks through outcast men, the pure and impure. God chooses what is despised to make us whole. God would turn the compost in my heart, taking this big mass of all kinds of people who didn't belong together and making it into a beautiful church, transforming Elisha's grief and whining about a double portion into a blessing, a fertile ground as a prophet among God's people, taking coffee grounds and slimy spinach and potato peels and turning them into fresh, nutrient-rich dirt. So maybe it's no mistake that as we enter into the season of Lent, we press ash, dust, dirt into each other's foreheads. That as we long for this symbol of death and its mortality and endings and crumblings because we know that within it, there is something deep and comforting. That as we acknowledge that the endings the stuff of new beginnings. That the dust is the same dust, the dirt is the same dirt, and the God that created all of it is the God that is blowing and working and nibbling away at all those things.
same God is holding the bread of the disciples and assuring us that even what is crumbling is being held and that love is infused at every stage. Ashes to ashes, dirt to dirt, dust to dust. You are dust and you are Seeing those ashes on each other's foreheads tomorrow might remind us that we're all in it together. This big, messy, dirty, beautiful, interconnected web of life, connected to each other, connected to the earth beneath our feet, connected to the one who created us. And it's as if in that moment the dust can dissolve that which separates us, as if the ash burns through the illusion that we're anything but fellow sojourners on this journey, a part of creation. And in that moment, we remember that we are all being mixed and turned and cultivated together in this divine compost Dear ones, I believe a new world is possible, that a new world is coming and a new world is here, and that those seeds of defiance are being planted and growing in and amongst that Thanks for listening to the Food and Faith Podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest University School of Divinity, Plainsong Farm, Garden Church, and the Keep and Till. And the music is by Paul Deaver. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org.